Welcome to the Secular Dharma Foundation podcast. These episodes are available at no cost on multiple streaming services. The podcast is intended to provide an open dialogue inviting a wide range of perspectives to subjects related to secular issues that align with our mission. We hope you enjoy. Thank you. All right. Hello, everybody. Dave Smith here with the Secular Dharma Foundation. I'm here with my my old teacher, my old friend, Joseph Goldstein. It's good to see you, Joseph. Yeah. Hi, Dave. <laughs> good to be here. How is it in Barry? Is it getting cold up there by now? It's it's cold and gray, and it gets dark early. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah. sounds about right. <laughs> we're heading into yeah. winter. Yeah. Well, I have a whole bunch of questions for you. I hope hope we're going to have some fun. I, I I feel like it's kind of a little bit of a joy for me because I've been uh-huh. I've been reading your books and listening to your talks and really kind of been. Maybe you don't realize that we have a much more closer relationship than you realize because I've been listening to you talk for thirty years. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I do yeah. want to start off a bit with the theme of our organization, the Secular Dharma, um, because uh, I want to ask you some questions because you've been in the space so long. Um, you know, you started teaching, you guys opened up the IMS in the early 70s and uh, were teaching retreats. Um, and now with things like 10% Happier and Mindfulness, and I mean, did you see any of this coming? And, and did you ever expect that the practice would be as widespread as it has become? Yeah, not at all. <laughs> not, in, not in the slightest. Of course, who could have predicted back in the 70s what the technology would become? Yeah. You know, I think that I'm not exactly sure, but I think that was before widespread use of even of the internet. Oh, for you sure. Know, certain, certainly smartphones. And so the technology has really made a lot of this possible, you know, and there was no way to foresee that. Right. No, the technology, but also just the teachings have, I mean, obviously they have such relevance for the times in the world that we live in right now. And the fact that they've been uh, as really, I think, adopted in the culture and especially in therapeutic things, mindfulness-based stress reduction, yeah. it seems yeah. quite amazing. Yeah. I, th- I think that John Kabat-Zinn's work uh, with the MBSR really did push it out into the mainstream in a really significant way. You and know, I would imagine mindfulness became known. <laughs> yeah. And I, I would imagine he must have been. Do you, do you remember John from back in the day? He, I would imagine. I know that he sat retreats at IMS. I would imagine yeah. he must, his practice yeah. must have originated in the Dharma Hall down there. Well, it, he, he had a kind of dual practice. He, he practiced here at IMS. He also had a, a long standing Zen practice. Uh, but I think that uh, he mentioned that he first had the idea for MBSR while he was sitting a retreat. Here. Yeah, and so while he should have been watching his breath, he was busy uh, concocting this whole massively successful program. Well, we should all be grateful for his lack of diligence, yeah. perhaps that he was. Yeah. He was like, "This might yeah. actually have practical, real-world applications." Yeah, yeah. And do you notice? I mean, just looking back, I mean, of course, it was probably John, but did you notice a point? Some point there was a turn where it started to open up, and you guys maybe saw the floodgates opening, being like, "Wow, this is really." going to help a lot of people. This this actually has real consequences for spreading out into the law. Was it retreats getting more fill, more filled up easier or anything like that? Well, I think that the real uh, starting point, certainly for the Vipassana scene, and I think for some others, um, I, I don't know whether you remember um, the first session of Naropa Institute 
yeah. you know, the Trungpa Rinpoche set up. And so the first summer session was in 74 and it was kind of like a Buddhist Woodstock, yeah. you know, because people came from all over the country. I think there were a couple of thousand people there. Ramdas was there and Trungpa. So they attracted a lot. And I, I was teaching and Jack also was teaching during that summer session. And it just exposed us and the teachings to, you know, a cross section of people across the country. And it was really out of those summer sessions that we started getting invitations to lead retreats uh, all over. And so it was, a, it was really a grassroots phenomenon. You know, it was just word of mouth, people hearing, yeah, you know, we can do this. They came to the retreats and people were getting so much out of it that it just it was just really mushroomed. Now, I think I've heard the story. Were you living in Boulder at the time? I think I heard a story where a bunch of people showed up at your apartment. Yeah. Or maybe you told yeah, the story. Yeah. So you were actually in Boulder at the time of those. No, no. They had just given me an apartment for the summer as oh, faculty. Okay. Oh, yeah. nice. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if you remember the story, but all these friends from India came and crashed, you know, and I was working really hard. I was teaching like six, seven sessions a day. <laughs> And so I was getting a little, um, <laughs> I'm not quite sure what the right word is, annoyed or yeah. put upon, whatever. And then after a few days of watching my mind, you know, kind of resisting, I realized that the whole problem was that I thought it was my apartment. Right, sure, <laughs> yeah. But when I let go of the mind, then it was fine. Then we were just a bunch of friends living together, as we had done for years in India. Yeah, right. So was, and you probably didn't expect, a, I would imagine they didn't expect, like Woodstock, they didn't expect maybe the turnout they had for that in Europa session? I, um, I doubt that they did, you know, because it was the first time something like that had happened and kind of galvanized the latent interest in Eastern, you know, meditation, philosophy, uh, which must have been there because people were drawn and also Ramdas and Trungpa Rinpoche were were quite well known already, so they were a big draw. You guys had some good headliners. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just lastly, because we're where we are, we are talking about the secularization of practice a little bit. Um, you know, I've seen you, you know, teach Dharma retreats. I've seen you do uh, talks at different fundraisers for various mindfulness stuff. What What are some of the pros and cons that you maybe have noticed or recognized about, you know, mindfulness being as readily available as much of a household term? Do you ever do you ever think about those things, or have you seen sort of like the pros and the cons of the popularization and where people might be led astray and so forth? Well. Basically, I think it's great. You know, it's yeah. exposing lots of people to the basics of the practice. So I think that's terrific. Uh, I think one of, not so much um, a danger, I would, I would say a, a limitation okay. of it is uh, that for, for the most part, I, I don't want to overgeneralize this, but in my understanding, for the most part, in the teaching of secular mindfulness, they don't so much go into the teachings, to the deeper teachings, right. uh, you know, of selflessness, uh, you know, the teachings on emptiness, or even, and you, you, you'll I whether this is so or not, but I wonder whether included in the teachings of secular mindfulness, there is much emphasis on the foundation of uh, sila ethical behavior. Yes, I've definitely heard that. You know, yeah. So, 
from the Buddhist perspective, that's foundational. You yes, know, it's, yeah. um, and so if that's not being taught, then that would be a limitation. Um, but in terms of what it is doing, I think it's really helpful. No, I, I think that's and, right. And, yeah, and many people come, you know, some subset of the people who are drawn to secular mindfulness teachings, some subset will become interested enough to then explore further. You know, I think to that's come on right. Longer retreats. Yeah, because it's also true, let's be honest, right? Like, it doesn't take very, I mean, even a Google search, it doesn't take long before one finds out where this stuff comes from. And I find that people, huh. they do do, they do an MBSR course, maybe they do some secular mindfulness stuff. And really, the next thing to do, really, is to just go to IMS or Viacitos or one of these places and sit a multi-day yeah. retreat. And they're going to get introduced yeah. to that stuff relatively quickly. So I, I feel like that's kind of, it's interesting, though, because the Buddhist perspective, they usually start with sila, but we kind of start with meditation right. first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when we when we first came back from India and Asia, uh, this was like in 74, 75, um, we also didn't emphasize it that much in the beginning. Everybody was really excited by the, you know, the thought of enlightenment, enlightenment yeah. or bust. Yeah. Uh, and then it was interesting, you know, when my first teacher, Manindraji, uh, came to visit and he saw what was going on. He said, teaching the meditation without the foundation of sila, of, of ethic, ethical behavior, is like being in a boat wanting to row across the river, but without untying it from the dock. Yeah. <laughs> That's a strong analogy. <laughs> yeah. And so it is really important whenever it comes in, yeah. you know, whether, whether right from the beginning or soon after. But at some point, that has to be part of the teachings. Yeah, let me ask you this, too. This is, this is relevant, and I, I don't want to forget this, because I think this is also part of the equation with secular mindfulness and the, the kind of this, just pay attention, get good at paying attention, and everything's going to work out, like if that was even true. But we talk about, like, the Brahma Vihara practices, and I find that, and in, in you see this, and I know that there was a story about the Dalai Lama coming to IMS, but one of the things that we see, and I'm sure you've seen time and time again, people come to the practice and they don't always feel so fabulous about themselves. You uh -huh. know, it's not like so much that their seal is not great. You know, it's more right, like yeah. their attitude towards themselves is so harmful. They feel so much self-judgment, so much, so much criticism. So I feel like even seal is important, but just emphasizing the importance of being kind to yourself seems yeah. to be foundational. Absolutely. And, and of course, in a way, that's the essence of the practice, <laughs> you know, because um, built into a fuller understanding of mindfulness is the attitude of non-judgmental acceptance, right? you know, and, and seeing the whole of ourselves in that way. Uh, there's a beautiful poem by... Um, it's a Japanese woman poet named Izumi. Can't remember. Lived a couple of hundred years ago. I don't remember exactly. Um, and she just wrote, The moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky. I knew myself completely. No part left out. Mm. You know, and in a way, it's a beautiful expression of mindfulness practice. It's like, can we open to all parts of ourselves in that 
with that quality of loving acceptance. That's you right. know, so that really is built into the very nature of, of the practice. It is built in, but I find that people have to, let me ask you this question, because I know I was looking through your mindfulness book, which I think is great. Um, and I get this question a lot. Um, if you stand the teachings of Satipatthana next to the Brahma Viharas, you know, the, the Brahma Viharas aren't mentioned. If you were teaching uh, the Satipatthana or mindfulness in the foundations, the four foundations, where do you place or how do you place the, um, where do the Brahma Viharas fit within the structure of that practice yeah, for you? No, no, the, they're definitely in there. In the Satipatthana Sutta, in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, one of one of the many lists in that fourth foundation is the Eightfold Path. Yeah. It's the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So right thought, the Eightfold Path, second step, is developing the mind free of ill will, free of cruelty, uh, yeah, free of sense desire. And so free of ill will means the cultivation of metta. Free of cruelty means the cultivation of compassion. So right there, it's really central both in the Eightfold Path and then that's included in the Satipatthana Sutta. So yeah. I think there's a very uh, clear place for it. One of the other explanations I've put, and I'm curious to see what you think about this, is because you know you see joy. Also, do you feel like when then in the fourth foundation, the Brahma Viharas might actually fit well into the awakening factors? Because um, we see joy, and we also see the seventh awakening factor of equanimity. Yeah, well, equanimity is certainly there. Um, it is interesting. We'll just take equanimity as an example. Uh, but it could apply to joy as well. Uh, even though we use the same word, the way equanimity is experienced is somewhat different when we're doing it as a Brahma Vihara practice and when it is built into Vipassana or the mindfulness or the factors of awakening. So the word is the same and it's... Uh, it has very similar effects on our mind, but it is experienced differently. Um, so there are subtle, there are subtle differences. Mm -hmm. uh, so it might be a certainly. matter of, of the emphasis on where the emphasis is placed within the structure of the practice, perhaps? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in, in any case, I think that the kind of attitudes that you're... Um, you know, suggesting are really important for people entering into the path um, of of love and that metta for oneself as well as for others and compassion for oneself as well as others. Uh, that's right in there. You know, it's, yeah. it's a component of the Eightfold Path. So, so it really is quite um, central. No, I, I'm with you. I, I find that pe people ask me that a lot too, because it's like a little, like you said, you know, it, it almost requires for, for the first, at first glance, a little bit of digging, you know, to, to uh -huh. actually see uh -huh. where they, where they sit. Um, uh -huh. I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, in, in 2002, you wrote the book One Dharma. I don't know how long mm -hmm. it's been since you thought about that book. I thought it was a great book. In fact, I read that book. I sat the three month retreat in 03. And I think I uh -huh. read that, read that on the way in. Um, uh -huh. I'm just wondering how much you think about that, or you know, if you were to write that book today, 
Um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you think it, it, what what would that look like today, and would there be more mention, perhaps, of this kind of secularization of the practice? Because you do talk about it a little bit in the book, but I'm just wondering if if you were to bring it. That's 22 years ago. I'm wondering if there's certain things that you might might have changed or might actually come to mind that would be added or things that you've maybe thought about over the years. Um, I mean, what what really um, motivated me to write the book was try, as you probably remember, was trying to reconcile uh, some of the differences between different Buddhist traditions in terms of basic teachings, because, and I was contrasting particularly Vipassana and some Tibetan teachings, you know, Dzogchen and Mahamudra, because the metaphysics are really different, mm. you know, and they say quite different things about the nature of enlightenment and the unconditioned. Uh, and so for a long time, I was really struggling because I had studied with great masters in both traditions you know, who was speaking from experience, not theoretically. So then, okay, well, if one tradition says one thing and the other says another thing, the question in my mind is who's right? And it was a source of tremendous conflict. Uh, But it resolved, I was actually on a two-month Dzogchen retreat with this question burning, you know, and then finally, it it took quite a while, a month of torment, uh, and, and somehow it all resolved in, in the phrase, and I don't know if you remember this from the book, uh, when I understood metaphysics as skillful means rather than statements of truth. Uh-huh. You know, so if we take the metaphysical teachings, the, the metaphysical foundations of the different traditions, and if we take them as statements of absolute truth, then when two are in conflict, then there's the question, who's right? But if we take them as skillful means, and then we, we could ask, well, skillful means for what? Right? And then in looking deeper, I saw, at least in my understanding, but I think, I think it's accurate, skillful means for non-clinging. Yeah. Because the Buddha was very explicit, you know, liberation through non-clinging, mm-hmm. right? And so then any teaching, if it helps the mind, free the mind from clinging, it's good. And even if something that says quite the opposite frees the mind from clinging, then that's good. So we can then take from many traditions if it serves that end. So now, for example, when people ask me what I practice, knowing that I've practiced in some different traditions, I simply say I practice not clinging. (laughs) and that will keep you busy on most days i imagine uh, absolutely (laughs) i mean it gets to it just gets to the root the essence of the practice rather than getting you know attached uh so just i don't know do you know the author way will way no so he was i think it was either irish or british I, i can't remember uh who lived in hong kong for many years and clearly had some deep realization. He wrote many books with these very uh, clever but incisive little uh, almost epigrams or you know short little pieces, but just hit the point. So one of them uh, was uh, 
Disciples, devotees, what are most of them doing? Worshipping the teapot instead of drinking the tea. That's right. You know, and so I think it's important to drink the tea. No, and the right. tea yeah. is not clinging. Yeah, no, I'm so happy to hear you say this because it's almost feel like you teed me up. Because I've been I've been on this for a while now, and I think that the Buddha was much, you know, and people get into this whole business, and this is a problem for people in general of coming, the arguing over who's got the right capital T versus the wrong capital yeah. T. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, I feel like you know I don't think the Buddha was so much interested in what the ultimate nature of reality was as much as how how to help you live your life. And living your life really seems to be a process of, you know, not clinging in many ways. Well, the, but the two, I would just, I would just tweak that a little sure. bit. I don't think he was uninterested in the ultimate nature, but I think he was emphasizing the way to experience it. Right. And and so the way to experience it is through non-clinging, mm-hmm. you know, and he, he points that out over and over again. So it's not that not clinging is limited to secular applications. Right. It, it actually leads to the highest goal. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's, it's that means which is so important. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about clinging for a bit because it's such a—it's sort of the topic, right? You know, like. But I know that the, the Pali. What I've—I've I've been really in, kind of obsessed with the Pali in the last many years because I'm always interested in where things come from. But the word upadana, right. uh, right. it's a two-word meaning I've heard. Because one thing about clinging, I think in English that's a bit uh, can set us up is that it, people think it applies too much of a grabbing, but clinging is, is resisting as much as it is grabbing. Um, and also, uh, the other way that I've heard it cited is that it's, upadana means to cling, but I have also heard it means to fuel. And I feel like in my mind, I'm doing a lot of fueling a lot of times and not, not even knowing that as an aspect of clinging. Sure. Well, in terms of the fueling aspect, um, I think um, if we go one step back, you know, in this whole chain of dependent origination, uh, craving, which is which is the link that leads to clinging. Sure. You know, it's because we crave either something something to be there or something not to be there. Right. It's equally craving. Uh, I think craving really is the fuel. Okay, you know, and and then clinging is the way we act it out. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. And then also cra- craving or clinging, or craving as in tanha. Also, I kind of think it's a bit of a shorthand for greed, hatred, and delusion, because those are really what what really fires that those fires really seem to be. I know later schools of Buddhism call them the three poisons, but from what I gathered early on, they're more they're more attributed to being of, of a quality of fire rather than poison. Yeah. Um... Yeah, probably at different times historically, yeah. that, you know, just different images were, uh, you know, appropriate. Um, I was going to say something, but my aging brain, this often happens. Like, <laughs> I hear you. Yeah, thought, stuff comes and goes, there, it rises and, and passes away. That, that is, oh, yeah. No, I just, <laughs> it just came back. All right, good. <laughs> it arose, it passed, it arose again. <laughs> So in, in terms of uh, craving, uh, the Buddha gave one teaching, which 
is just so powerful and it really uh, it points to a very high bar of understanding where he said as long as there's attachment to the un- to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant liberation is impossible that is a so, high bar yeah, you know, but it does point us in the right direction. So, so even though you know the full realization of that may be a little way off, but if we have that clearly in mind, at least we know we're walking in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And if we keep walking, we'll get there at some point. Which yeah, it so reminds me. Like, yeah, yeah, it reminds me of your mindfulness book because I did you your your section on feeling tone Vedna, which is what you're talking about, is so good. I, I can't tell you how many retreats I've actually read from that about how it's uh, such an essential part. Which if we back up before craving, right before that independent origination, we see this yeah, feeling yeah. tone, yeah, and that yes. seems to be such a central topic in the whole Buddhist endeavor. And also a a bit tricky because we use the word feeling in English. We use it in kind of a wide variety of ways, which isn't always so helpful. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's why in using that term, uh, it's really important to define how it's being used in this context, you know, which, you know, as you're saying, it's that quality of the taste of things being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. So people... Don't confuse it with feeling as emotion. Right, right. Yeah, no, that, a lot gets lost in terminology I found over yeah, the years. Yeah, a- absolutely. Yeah. And in, in back also, too, you talk about um, one thing I love about the One Dharma book is you talk about, you really tee it off well with kind of these four principles. And, and one of them you just pointed to that, uh, you know, concepts, philosophical concepts are helpful and useful, but only to the certain extent that we can actually apply them to our direct experience. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's like reading a menu is quite different than actually totally. eating the meal. <laughs> yeah. And you, and you also talk about the practice. So, the, so how you do that, right? Of course, is mindfulness is the practice that we use. Um, and it, that seems to be a mindfulness seems to be certainly across all of the Buddhist traditions. But one thing, I, if you don't mind talking about it, because you used mm. the word torment not too long ago, uh, it's a lot of people, a lot of friends of mine, people I've known over the years, have kind of gone through this Dharma exploration where they do Vipassana and they try some Zen and they did mm-hmm. some, you know, Dzogchen. It sounds like in the early two thousands or the late nineties, you were doing a lot of maybe other practices. You were you were exploring Dzogchen and doing some other Tibetan practices. Certainly, you seem to have come back around to to the roots. But what what was it that you were going through in those retreats that were sounds like you were really struggling with some of these concepts? Was it just a matter of you were trying to understand a concept, or what do you think the tension was in all that for you? Because I think a lot of people have that. Right. Well, first, given the fact that uh, so many different uh, traditions are now easily available in the West, which is very different than in Asia, right. you know, because the, the traditions were quite isolated from one another. And Burmese Buddhists didn't know anything about Tibetan Buddhism or Thai, you know, it's, so there was not this same kind of crossover uh, information that we now have. So I think it is really important, and this was my own situation. I see a certain trajectory in exploring a range of teachings. So I think in the beginning, kind of uh, shopping around a little bit, you know, getting a taste, listening to the talks, meeting teachers, 
and feeling out which of the traditions really resonates the most, with, which inspires us to do it, you know, right. to actually put it into practice. Then I think it's important to devote oneself to that tradition for long enough, and this is over years and years of practice, until one is really well established in that tradition. At that point, then it becomes interested for those who have that kind of mind, you know, like to explore other things. At that point, then, to perhaps, um, you know, get the teachings, go on retreats in other traditions, because then it just enriches or enhances uh, the path that we're on. Uh, but to do that too early, I think, can just create a lot of confusion. Sure. So, so for me, I had already been practicing Vipassana for many, many, many years, you know. And in a way, the, the, the torment I was mentioning, <laughs> uh, it wasn't so much about the practice. It was, a, it was about the philosophic or metaphysical differences. And I was trying to reconcile those, you know, because my mind, and this is just characteristic of my mind, it, it likes to synthesize things. No, I understand. <laughs> so given, given that inclination, I was just interested, okay, well, you know, where's, where's, uh, how can this be understood so that they're not in conflict? Right. Um, and there was a way, you know, I, I came to a way of understanding as I just described earlier. Right. Yeah, a matter of skillful means. And I've heard you say many times in many talks, you know, whatever works to liberate the mind. I mean, that's what we're right. really looking for. And right. whether it comes from Zen or Tibetan or whatever, who cares? You know, where, right, exactly. where it that, comes from, that, it works. We don't want to be worshiping the teapot. Exactly, yeah. How, yeah. But, but it is important, I just want to emphasize again, you know, for whoever may be listening, that after one has decided on a practice that inspires one, to really stay with it until it matures to some extent. Yeah. You know, so we really have a depth of understanding so that we're not confused in the practice as, as we explore other things. No, I'm glad you emphasize that again, because I think in our culture with the amount of information have and people's attention, you know, to, to really hammer home, like you might want to give it a couple of years, because I think people now, they just do the Dharma channel surfing. They try this, they yeah. try that. They're like, well, I went to a day long in that tradition. It didn't yeah. work for me. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And, and I think it's more than a couple of years. Yeah, right, right. Probably yeah. a decade I, or something, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one really wants to, you know, to to let it sink in and, and to really come to a depth of understanding, yeah. you know, in, in whatever that practice may be. You, one thing I've always wanted to ask you is, um, you talk about this uh, in, in, in the book, One Dharma, the expression of sort of the Dharma is compassion. That's kind of across traditions. And we mm -hmm. always hear about, you know, we hear often wisdom, compassion, wisdom, compassion. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering why, just in, in my understanding of things, it seems like it would more be, I would be more tempted to call it wisdom and kindness because, you know, compassion is one of the Brahma Viharas. Metta is kind mm. of the overarching theme. I just wonder if you have a sense or does it even matter of the four, why did compassion get elevated to kind of the point where it was wisdom and compassion and not like wisdom and metta because it seems like metta is the thing that holds it all together. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I don't know how that first, <laughs> you know, there is that expression, the two wings of the Dharma. Sure. Um, so I don't know, I don't know who uh, yeah. made that up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, in one way, they're pretty close. Sure. You know, um, and as you say, in one way, uh, metta could be seen as foundational because it allows us um, it allows us to have that good feeling or um, or allows us to come close to situations of suffering mm -hmm. you know be because there is that goodwill towards beings and so when that goodwill is the foundation of how we're going through the world then compassion becomes the natural expression of it mm. when we're faced with a situation of suffering. Mm. Um, yeah, I wouldn't make too much of the distinction. They, it's, That's what it's my mind does. Like, I get really, really weird about this kind of stuff. <laughs> well, it's a, it's almost like um, um, this is this is just me now. <laughs> this is not out of the text, but. You know, we could almost think of compassion is the expression of metta in the face of suffering. See, that's how I so would we could say almost it. See, so we could say it is actually metta, but it takes a particular form when it's in relationship to suffering. And the form it takes is, how can I help? Right. You know, so they're very intertwined. And, yeah. Yeah. The reason I bring it up is because one of the things that I just working with students one on one is that a lot of times people, uh, you know, they want to jump to the compassion maybe quicker than they're ready because of because of the way it's acknowledged. And sometimes I find that they they don't have that foundation of metta for themselves. Yet. Right. They don't have that kind of basic okayness that Sharon calls that kind of and and sometimes right. the that they're jumping from like I hate myself to compassion is like kind of too big of a jump for some people early on which is that's, that's kind of why I bring it up yeah but uh, yeah I mean I think that's a valid point we could also understand the situation you're describing as developing compassion for oneself sure so when when you're with people you know who, don't, who have a lot of self-judgment self-hatred or unworthiness uh so some some interplay of meta and compassion towards oneself yeah i think is is really appropriate yeah that's right yeah let me uh, let me jump a little bit here because the time goes by so quick i do i could i could do this all day it's so so great <laughs> to talk to you about this stuff um with Dharma teachings, you know, one thing I always, I, you know, I, when I have a new topic I want to explore, one of the first things I do is see is what did Joseph have to say on this? Um, how important in how the study and practice of Dharma, you know, how has that gone? Because I know a lot of times, you know, people say like, oh, do I need to know these lists or can I just practice? And I think there's a way in which there's, there's got to be some kind of a healthy diet. How, how has that been for you in terms of looking at the text or the Pali suttas in your practice? How has the, the, the relationship between those two uh, been helpful? How has it been a hindrance at times? For me, I, like I said, because of the questions I ask, I can get really bogged down in words and what they mean. And uh, how, how has that been part of you? Because you've been doing this for so long, and I know that you've kind of done both from the beginning. Yeah, and, and so... I've seen both sides. I've seen the, the plus and the minuses yeah. of both. And so in the beginning, uh, 
I did have a little bit, I, I was not a scholar by any means, but I had a little background in the study side and particularly about how the path unfolds. That was a hindrance. It would have been much better, I think, for my, for my own practice if I didn't know anything and I just <laughs> did the practice. Because when you know, you know, you know the different stages and what's supposed to happen, then it's a setup for expectation and disappointment and all kinds of things. If you don't know, if you go in really innocently and you just follow instructions, I think the path unfolds a lot easier. Sure. But once one is one, once we're somewhat familiar or established in the practice to some extent, then I think um, some study aspects can be helpful because uh, our practice is always and our experience is always limited. You know, it's our own personal experience of the path. But the Buddhist teachings are vast, you know, and the Dharma is vast. So just as an example, these days when uh, I go on self-retreat, which I do every year, uh, you know, and for an extended period of time, what I've come to do in the last number of years is listen to the Buddhist suttas on Audible. So they're all there. <laughs> all, oh, yeah, all they the and I love it because it's like, so on retreat, I'll listen, you know, for 15 minutes, half an hour, uh, just to the suttas. And it's like the Buddha is giving a Dharma talk. Yeah. So why not go to the top? <laughs> you know? Uh, and what I found is that listening impacts me in a, a stronger way than reading. Huh. You know, so I'll be listening, and it does take a lot of patience because of all the repetition, you know, in the text. But once one gets over that and just relaxes, sometimes as I'm listening, just one line will jump out, and something that I would I think I would have passed over if I were reading it. Mm -hmm. So I'll just give you an example, and but there have been many over the years, um, and this this is. The benefit of whether read whether we're reading or listening, we we read things or hear things that we haven't thought of before, or an aspect of the teachings that we really haven't integrated yet. So one of my favorites that that just last year or the year before, I was listening, and the Buddha was using one expression in English, which is not a common expression. And I think that's why it jumped out at me. So he's talking about the nature of change. You know, and so, yeah, everything is changing, always becoming otherwise. Huh. And that becoming otherwise, always becoming otherwise, really is just another way of saying things change. But saying things change has become so, in a way, so banal. And we sort of blow it off. We're like, I know that. Ex ex exactly. But things becoming otherwise. So I could be going for a walk and all of a sudden my knee starts to hurt or something. Yeah. And now kind of the first, oh, becoming otherwise. Yeah. And it brings that teaching to life in a very moment-to-moment -moment way. If I had not been you know, open to the text, 
I wouldn't never even come across that. Yeah, that's a great example. No, I a, use that a lot too, because impermanence, I mean, how long, how many Dharma talks you got to sit to before yeah. you hear that concept? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And that's uh, one of those ones I think that's like, uh, like I said, I think we tend to blow it off. We're like, yeah, yeah, I know. And it's like, exactly. oh, do you really? Right. Because the <laughs> exactly. funny thing is one of the things that I cling to is wanting things to be otherwise. And uh, it sounds uh, like it's already, I should just relax because all I have to do is wait a few moments. Exactly. Things, things are always <laughs> becoming otherwise anyway, whether you want it or not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm glad to hear you say that. I'm, I'm like that too. I'm a terrible, I shouldn't say terrible. I'm not a great, my reading comprehension skills have never been good. So like for me, like to read a Dharma book, it's like, I feel like it's my job. I feel like I should be getting paid when I'm reading a book, but this whole audible, this whole books on yeah. tape and also Dharma seed, which I've been listening to for years yeah. changed the game for me because as a musician, perhaps it is, I hear something that just sticks in my head yeah. and I yeah. could read 10 pages and not remember one line. It's just the way my mm -hmm. mind does. Yes, yeah. It, it's really a valuable uh, uh, format for, for many people. Yeah, yeah. I've heard you say that in your talks. You're kind of pestering the monks. And at one point, Menendra said, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. And you were exactly. probably like, oh, gee, that had not occurred to me as an option. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I find that the study has it's been good for me, too. And I was lucky because I didn't really start studying it till years after I was in it. I remember I always tell stories. I said at IMS, probably three or four retreats in my teen years, I didn't even know that what we were doing was Buddhism at all. <laughs> I just thought it was like Hahnemann's dad had these cool friends and they had this building in Barry. And I would hear like Dharma and Vipassana, but I had no idea yeah, for yeah, years yeah. that that's what we were doing. And I think it probably saved me because I just I just did what you guys told me to do. And, and right. I, didn't have any, I didn't have any context for, for where it came. I didn't even really care. I was just like, whatever right. this is, seems to have some value. Right, right, right. You know? And so, yeah. but at some point, I think it is to negotiate that. But also, too, listening to the sutras you just mentioned, um, I mean, you know, Buddhism is a, is a big animal. And so, mm -hmm. you know, and so do you, over the years, do you kind of drift towards more of the Pali suttas? Or because people think of the Theravada, but the Theravada is the Vasudhi Maga and all the commentaries and right. a lot of stuff to dig through. Where, where, do, you, do you have any sort of, do you put more weight on any one of those or not? Or have you kind of landed on the Pali suttas these days? Well, uh, yes. Yeah, so when, when I'm listening, you know, I'm listening to the suttas. But yeah. in the past, I have uh, read and, and Kind of gone through it, uh, not totally from cover to cover, but because it's a big, it's a big book yeah. and very tech. Some some parts are extremely technical, but the Vasudhimaga, the Path of Purification. In my earlier years, I really used that as a reference yeah. book, and I found it really helpful because it really elaborated on a lot of what is in the suttas. Uh, so some some people, in a way, look down on the commentaries. Yeah, but uh, uh, I don't because actually everything. Whenever we're teaching, we're just creating our own commentary. It's all a commentary, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Unless we're reading the sutta, yeah, it's a commentary. Yeah, that's right. That's a good point. So to say, oh, oh you know, the Vasudhi Mag is just a commentary. It's not important. That seems off base to me, yeah. because the commentaries often can ex explicate 
you know, in much more detail what we read in the sutta. So it can be very helpful for people whose minds are interested in that investigation. Now, when when you first got into the practice, I know Dan Dan Goleman in his book Altered Traits talks about going over to India when you guys all did. And, and the, he talks about the Vasudhi Maga kind of being something that you kind of maybe found quickly, where the, maybe the maybe the Pali Canon just wasn't. So I would imagine it was just a matter of just sort of what was lying around. With when you went to India and you were studying, did you did you encounter the Vasudhi Maga fairly early on? Was that kind of well, I did. Be, you know, it really I think it really depends on who uh, who is one's teacher. Okay. So our first teacher, both for me and Danny and a lot of other people, uh, was Anagarika Munindra. Yeah. You know, and Munindraji had he was Indian but Bengali, but he had been practicing in Burma for eight or nine years, and he had just come back from Burma when I met him. And he had combined years of practice with also with many years of study. So his whole teaching method really incorporated a lot of the study aspect and a lot of material of the Vasudhimaga. Because he was, he was really a master of it. He could just recite it, wow. you know, by memory. Uh, and so right from the very beginning, you know, just exposed to this whole range of teachings. And he must have studied, he, was he, a, he must have been studying pretty closely with Mahasi Sayadaw. Was that who he yeah, was? Yeah, he was. He, yeah. He was a student of, of Mahasi's. I mean, yeah. talk about luck that you guys just stumbled into this guy, right? I mean, what are the chances oh, that you get this guy? Oh, absolutely. Comes back, he's with Mahasi Sayadaw for eight or nine years and comes back and basically has the whole catalog inside of his head? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll just share with you one story of uh, whether it was luck or something else. So I had been in the Peace Corps in Thailand, introduced to Buddhism, but hadn't really practiced much came back to the States afterwards and realized I wanted to pursue it. I needed a teacher, went back to India to look for a teacher. And I'm traveling around, going here and there, couldn't find anybody. So I'm in New Delhi thinking, okay, I'll go back to Thailand where I was in the Peace Corps. Maybe I'll find a teacher there. So I'm going to the airline office in New Delhi. I'm walking down the street and at a certain point, some force stopped me from taking another step forward huh. and uh this i'm not this kind of psychic kind of person no i know you're not that's why i like you so much <laughs> you, you know i'm just an ordinary guy but this quite remarkable thing happened i couldn't take another step forward yeah so it was so strange so i went back and then i had the thought oh maybe i'll go to Benares. You know, so I go to Benares, and then in Benares, maybe I'll go to Bodhgaya. You know, and there was Manindra. So in a certain way, I feel like I was led, you know, to meet him. And, and it was, went, and you amazing. went to Bodhgaya. That's the place of the Buddha's enlightenment. I would imagine. Some yeah. of that was you're like I might as well go back to the beginning and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. He's and so also too. I know that you've mentioned. I'm just curious because we're going to run out of time here faster than I thought. Um, I've heard you mention people like uh, Rupert Geffen in some of your talks. At some point, did you did you start to look at the text a little bit more academically? I know you probably had access to Andrew Olinsky for years, and some of these guys who really have gone through it on that level. Uh, what, what, did you did you look at? Because I have some of Rupert's books and stuff, and I really like that. Has that has that been all helpful and informative to you? Looking at it from these people who really have tore these texts apart in some ways. Right. So 
kind of my uh, interest and exploration of some of the academic side of it, uh, which is, had not been extensive, but yeah. you know, to some extent, really came about when I started writing uh, some books, and most of the later books, uh, like One Dharma and Mindfulness, because uh, in the writing of the book and getting into the getting into the weeds of the teachings, yeah, sure. so then I just became interested in okay, it's, you know, basically a research project. Right. No, I can know. see that. Yeah. And and so from that perspective, that acad- academic side uh, was helpful. It clarified clarified things, uh, but I hadn't I, I hadn't done that really before I started writing. Yeah, because I noticed the you know your book your mindfulness book is very thorough, and I would imagine when you yeah. get, and also Biko and Ali was up there now, and I know that you've mentioned him yeah. a couple of times. I'm, I'm sure yeah. having him hanging around doesn't hurt. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And so uh, the other thing, you know, my favorite topic I always love to talk to you about um, is the five aggregates, um, uh-huh. because because you know, and I've heard you say this many times that I find them to be such an essential part of the teaching. They're, oh, they're, absolutely. They're on every yeah. other page, and the aggregates yes. are actually what we cling to. Yes. Um, one of the that people have asked me, I'm a bit obsessed with them, and I actually at one point developed a five aggregate practice where all I was doing when I practiced, I would just explore the five. Uh, yes. Why do you think it doesn't get the airtime it deserves? I find that people ask me that all the time, though, the aggregates seem important. How come I just always find it's one of these things that you think it would be kind of front and center a bit more? Right. Well, um, I think there are a couple of things at play. Um, I think one of, one of the reasons is that at first glance, uh, it just seems really dry and theoretical. Yeah, you know? I think it's and not so a great, it, exciting term, is it? Yeah, and also, uh, so when I when I first began practicing, and Manindra would talk about it a lot, but it didn't really resonate so much. It, it didn't capture my interest. It just felt oh dry and a little bit technical. But as the practice developed, and I did a little more study, it became very relevant. You know, so that's that's one piece. You know, it's it. It doesn't initially draw one in for many people. You know, it may feel too philosophical in a way and not you know, practical, which of course it is. That's the, iron- that's the irony of it for me because I think it's one of the more pra- pragmatic. No, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, but the the other point is that even though very often it's not presented as its own particular teaching, Actually, each of the aggregates are talked about individually in terms of the meditation instructions. So yeah. it's not that they are being ignored. It's just that usually they're not presented as the system, right? Because right, uh, of the first aggregates, essentially the first foundation of mindfulness. Yeah. Feeling is the second foundation. It seems like it's yeah, just another yeah. way to talk about the same thing. No, exactly. And each one of them is talked about on retreats in terms of, particularly in terms of instructions and how to practice. Uh, But as you said, they're they're not often, well, maybe a little more now, um, especially with perhaps the senior teachers, uh, 
it is talked about as a framework. Uh, yeah, but but I think for the reason that I mentioned, it's not the first thing that that is often put out. Uh, but it is, as you say, it's totally essential uh, and essential to understanding the whole teaching. I had a, I mean, a, a mind blowing experience. This is probably 15 years ago when, when Andrew Linsky was still at BCBS. I took one of his courses on Abhidharma, which I was, I just always wanted to study with Andrew. Yeah, yeah. There was nothing else. And I think I was like, I don't even know what this Abhidharma is. I'm just going to go and check yeah. it out. And of course, he had to, you know, he drew it up on the board with circles and arrows and, and, yeah. and, and, and so it was like, it, it came alive. It kind of jumped off the page where I was like, oh my yeah, God, yeah. that's actually my mind. <laughs> and then and then and then having the time to go into the hall and practice with it yes. i really it really kind of because it basically was very freeing because i was like oh this is all there is yes yes this is the yes. whole damn thing yeah and 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 there's something about that because i always thought the mind was just you know we all think the mind is this big complicated advanced right, right. thing it's really actually not you know right. it, does, it only it has a couple of kind of inherent bad behaviors you got to keep an eye on and other than that you're mostly but I, but I found that to be really really uh important and also uh and also just to uh because you do mention the aggregates in your section and one of the closing sections in one dharma about nibbana mm -hmm. and I also listened to the interview you did with Dan Harris not too long ago on nibbana uh -huh. and so how do those fit together because it seems like essentially nibbana is you know non-clinging to the aggregates and when we're not clinging to the aggregates we're having a somewhat of a nibonic experience yeah so <laughs> light topic this is a little hard to get into in the two minutes <laughs> so i don't know how how much you want to uh, keep to the time frame or not yeah before jumping into this um So there's, how to say, there are things which have the flavor of Nibbana, but not yet the experience of it. Okay. So it's a range. So, so it's a range. So in those moments when the mind is free of clinging, or in those moments when the mind is free of greed, hatred, delusion, in those moments, we could call that temporary Nibbana. You know, it, it's the cooling out, but the the actual experience of the reality of nibbana, and this is within the, the Theravada tradition in the Burmese tradition, is actually when the mind transcends the aggregates. You know, and the experience of what is transcendent to it. Okay. Now, different schools of Buddhism are going to have different views on this yeah right so that's why this is a long a long conversation yeah um so did you ever see i i did write an article on nibbana did you see that it was published in insight journal last year i probably didn't but i'm gonna look for it <laughs> okay i can send it to you if you oh I that'd can, be great send, yeah because I initially wanted to, to uh, write it and talk about it to the last cohort of our teacher trainees. Yeah. Because even if teachers have not yet had the experience, but still, this is the goal of the path. And sure. so I felt people should have an understanding of it. But it's pretty complicated. Mm -hmm. You know, there are a lot of nuances and different interpretations. So I, I, I worked quite hard at trying to really 
craft, you know, an article that would try to try to express it in as clear a way as possible. Yeah, uh, I think so about also, it. It's one of these words that's like kind of nibbana, a bit obvious and completely mysterious at the same time. You know, uh-huh. it's like in, in some level, it's just kind of no big deal that everyday kind of temporary Nibbana on some level, it's like, whoa, this is a very mysterious long thing. Uh-huh. But I think it's like one of the things that I've found to be helpful is like, I think sometimes it, people associate it with enlightenment. I, I think it's been a little bit elevated to a point where people feel like they don't even deserve to try for it. So part, part, I, I think it's been a little bit helpful for me to kind of bring it a little bit more down to the ground. Yeah, I, but I, th- I think it, it's helpful uh just to define how you're using the term so that people don't get confused Mm -hmm. so for example in talking about you know what has been called temporary nibbana it's indicating that it's not yet the experience but it's the flavor of it i got you i like that uh because you don't want you don't want to mislead people into thinking that that's all there is yeah you know, it, it's an important part of our whole path of the mind cooling out. Yeah. But then to have some understanding, even conceptually, of what the actual experience of it is. So to cover the whole range, I think, is really helpful. Well, thank you, Joseph, so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm sure people will be excited to hear our conversation. So thanks for taking some time today to sit down with me. Yeah, you're welcome. It's always a pleasure.